Welcome to Walls of Time, field interviews with the best in bluegrass. A Renaissance woman of bluegrass, Andrea Roberts has led the life of a musician with a trailblazing all-female group Petticoat Junction, as well as one of manager, promoter, and talent agent for some of the most well-known bluegrass artists. She is the wife of mandolin player Danny Roberts of the Grass Schools and mother to up-and-coming artist Jaylee Roberts. She has been a mentor to countless young artists and tastemakers in the field, including our own Daniel Mullins, with whom she sits down to talk about her journey on this episode of The Walls of Time bluegrass podcast i would say you're a jack of all trades but you're more of a jill of all trades in bluegrass music that would be correct that, that's pretty <laughs> accurate so where did your love of bluegrass start well um i was raised my dad's from southwest virginia uh from wise county uh across the ridge from ralph stanley and so he loved it he he uh grew up he went to school with kenny baker and uh, my mom's from western kentucky so they loved the music but dad had moved north to work in the car factory and in indiana in indiana so you know, you don't really necessarily know where the festivals are, um, and, you know, until you're kind of in the click of, of how to find out all the information. So I was raised up on classic country and southern gospel music. Um, but when I was 11, Dad came in from work and uh, said we were going to be going to a bluegrass festival. And I wasn't really sure that I was all that excited about that. Um, I was like, really? We're going to be going to, you know, uh, hee-haw, no shoe-wearing, no teeth-having, you know, kind of deal. And I wasn't that pumped up about it. The My mental picture of what a bluegrass festival was going to be wasn't, like, appealing. And um, the closer it came to time, the more excited my daddy got about it, and he brought up. Uh, pop-up camper to get ready for it and all this so we roll in on friday afternoon to the festival in martinsville indiana and i would say within 15 minutes i had already decided that i loved what was happening more than anything in my life and i never wanted to do anything different (laughs) so my first festival that i ever attended um bill monroe jim and jesse the Osborne Brothers, the Country Gentleman, the Seldom Seen, um, J.D. Crow, like every That's band, a who's like who. yeah. every band, it w- that would have been about 1978. So every top band was so there. So every top band was there. And by Sunday afternoon, I was sitting in front of the stage playing air banjo <laughs> and um, begging, and, and that's all I've done since that time. I f- absolutely fell in love with the music. The people, the bands that make the music, the people that go to the festivals, and that's been it. What was it that hooked you so instantaneously? I think it was just the entire atmosphere of the live festival. The I was just watching so many bands change stage, like that, you know, go across the stage that all had something different to offer, and... Um, being able to walk right up to those bands, you know, at 11 years old, I just, they walked off the stage and then I walked over and said, hello. And the people that were in the audience and we made, when we pulled our camper in and we camped with people and, um, 
made friends with them. It was just like, it was the live experience was just so awesome that um, at 11, I knew I never wanted to do anything but that. So the, the combination of the uh, the music, but also the community and the, the energy, that all kind of just... All of it was just like, it just blew me away, and I loved it. <laughs> so you said you were playing air banjo. Obviously, you didn't stick with air banjo. What was the first instrument you learned how to play? Banjo. Banjo. So I started off as a banjo player, so I, I played... Um, through my teen years, I played um, banjo in a fresh on my mind right this moment uh, because of where we're at and we're going to be watching the original Quicksilver reunion. Uh, I was at Bean Blossom. This was kind of a traumatic but yet funny to look back on. And my mom had cooked dinner for Quicksilver and they were coming over and she made me get my banjo out and play how long have I been waiting for you for Terry Bauckham? So I was a little traumatized, but yeah, you know, hey, I played his banjo break for him. So, but I didn't stay when I started singing and stuff. I kind of moved away from the banjo and to the guitar and to the bass. But banjo was the first thing. <laughs> you said you 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 moved to the bass, and you're known uh, as a bass player, um, among known for many other roles in the music, but. Um, first time a lot of people saw you was playing the bass and singing who were some of the folks you listened to as you were learning to play the bass like who were some of your biggest influences on the bass hmm. and because there wasn't a lot of women there weren't a lot of women playing bass at that time there weren't um somebody that was really um that i loved was ed ferris mm -hmm. I watched him play a lot, and he was really nice to me. He gave me my first set of golden spiral strings um, at Frontier Ranch, I think, around 1981 or 82. But um, I loved him. Alan Mills was very influential to and me. Alan was probably um, cool, too, because he sang and played the bass, and since that was right. kind of what you were looking for. And, um Goodness, there's so many of them. Um, of course, Roy Husky Jr. was a big influence. Um, I love, well, I love everybody. Like, for me, that's always been my thing. Like, for somebody to ask me who's a favorite or something is hard for me because when I listen and when I watch, everybody brings something different mm -hmm. to the table for my ears and for my heart. So, you know, it, it's just kind of hard to for me to ever narrow anything down to one or two but terry eldridge was also a big influence um to me um when he was playing with the osborne brothers um i learned a lot from terry when he was was with them just watching him play and and different things and of course just listening todd phillips was another one with bluegrass album band recordings that was a big deal <laughs> <laughs> you said that you we're focused on the singing, though, and that's one reason you switched to guitar and bass is so you could sing. Having listened to a lot of classic country records and then trying, then falling in love with this bluegrass stuff, I'm assuming you had started trying to sing before you showed up to your first bluegrass festival. So what were maybe some challenges or some differences or even some similarities in trying to switch your vocal style from more country to bluegrass? Well, I had never really sung even country much just with the radio. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So as I was learning bluegrass, um, you know, I bought tons of records, tons of eight-track tapes. Um, <laughs> and I was a huge Jimmy Martin fan. Um, 
And so kind of a life-changing moment for me early on was the Osborne brothers because Bobby sang so high that I could just sing along with him. I didn't have to try to sing the melody in an octave like I did with, you know, practicing with the other bands. Yeah. I actually just sang the same you didn't thing. You have to change keys. Right. I was yeah. singing the same thing he was singing. So the Osborne brothers and Bobby singing, like, I think it was really key even in keeping me, you know, like, it was an aha moment because, every, and then everything that they did, you know, I learned every song that I possibly could that he sang and had all the records. And so that was a huge uh, changing point for me with just trying to learn. And then as, as I sought out female artists, because there weren't a lot back then um, for me to bluegrass, that were yeah. doing bluegrass, um, Wilma Lee Cooper. And, and there were some great female artists um Pam Gad was with the, uh, the group Muddy River Band out of the Dayton area, and so she was a big influence to me. And of course, Rhonda Vincent, because mm-hmm. um, she was already out on the road playing with her family band, and um, and the Lewis girls, the Lewis family, and stuff. So there were there were some ladies, but um, it was very male driven at the time. So. Bobby Bobby was a huge influence. And you're not the only um female that I've I've heard that once they discovered the Osborne brothers it was like okay I can I can do this and cuz you could sing with Bobby cuz he sang that he high. He sang that high and then you know that also taught that that structure for when you're trying to sing on your own to get, you know, the two male voices underneath with the high lead and the two low harmony parts. So it was a life changer, old Bobby Osborne. You mentioned, uh, you mentioned that you really were drawn to move the music of Jimmy Martin as well. And I know we've talked before about this one particular festival you went to (laughs) and saw Jimmy Martin. Absolutely. And, literally shut down a bluegrass festival yes will you tell us about that am i allowed to say the colorful language sure okay well so this festival it wouldn't be a a true jimmy martin story without some colorful language so it was it was like i was i guess maybe i was 12 at this point and my mama didn't dad didn't let me get too far away but i was sitting with my friend off away from the parents and uh this festival was in North Judson, Indiana, at a racetrack, and uh, Jimmy was closing out the night on a Saturday night, and the show was running really late, so it was probably, I don't know, maybe one o'clock in the morning already, and he was on stage, and uh, it was pretty rowdy, and it was really fun, but he <laughs> said, uh, he told everybody, he's like, stand up, so everybody got out of their lawn chairs and stood up, and he said, if you like your neighbors, shake their hand. If you don't, knock the hell out of them. <laughs> well, this was like Hillbilly Central up there, like Eastern Kentucky, West Virginia, and Southwest Virginia had moved to this area. And there had maybe been a little moonshine passing and the whatnot going on. The biggest fight I have ever ever seen at a festival broke out there were lawn chairs flinging people i mean it was getting on with it i could hear my mama hollering my name you get her rare but uh <laughs> so yeah that all has always stuck out in my mind it was that was really fun <laughs> <laughs> 
That's exciting, right? <laughs> very exciting. <laughs> there is so much excitement in bluegrass. <laughs> that was a, I never saw that happen again. That's for certain. Yeah. <laughs> you talked about how there weren't a lot of females in bluegrass at the time when you were learning how to play. Right. So what does that mean for you then that you were able to help found one of the first all-female bluegrass bands in the 1980s? Petticoat Junction. It was really neat. Um, I wasn't really sure. I had just moved to Nashville. In a, I was 21 and had gone to uh, IBMA in Owensboro, and it was 1987, and was just trying to figure out what am I going to do for my next step because I had been in a band up in Michigan and was just trying to figure out I had only been in Nashville for maybe three weeks and was thinking, wow, this is a big place. This is a totally different thing to navigate. And uh, was talking with Russell Moore and Ray Deaton. And um, they were must have still been working. They with were Doyle still with Doyle. Okay. And um, I said, I don't really, I don't really know what to do. And my friend Sonia Yoder was with me. She happened to show up. We grew up together in Indiana, and she was attending Evansville. Um, university in Evansville, Indiana. So she had come over. So she and I were together and thought we'd like to play music. And they were like, well, there's the new concrete girls, but there's no reason why there can't be more than one all-female band because, I mean, look, there's 99% all-male bands. Why could there not be another all-female band? That could give you something to, you know, help kickstart the the idea of it that might be interesting to people and we're like hmm, that sounds like fun yeah. so that's that came from russell and ray and so we proceeded to um look for other girls that were interested in being in the band and to try to come up with a band name that fit and um we didn't want to be a mountain or a river or have the word girls in the band and so, but wanted people to know what it was. So we just had a stack of records on and we were just listening to songs. The The records would drop. We would listen through the lyrics or whatever. And Flatten Scruggs record dropped and it was Petticoat Junction theme. And we were like, hey, it's kind of a built-in theme song. People would know it sound it's girls yeah and stuff so that's how we ended up choosing the name for the band that's awesome uh, so it went from 1980 1980 10 years so it started in 80 88 to 98 to 97 so it'd have been nine years so what was the reaction when you started showing up to traditional bluegrass festivals with an all-girl band we were received really well i never had had anything but um growing up like tons of support like i would jam um sometimes you would get the you know well let's see what the little girl can do thing but that never really bothered me too much because for the most part it was always get in here and pick with us you know play and and um was supported so much um i would get a little frustrated when i started booking the band because like if the coon creek girls were already booked on the show the promoters would say ah we already have a female band we really can't we already have them hired we really can't hire you that would happen 
sometimes. But the over Whereas you already have ten more all male right. bands. It, but you're probably still going to book two or three more. Right, you know? exactly. Yeah. So, and it and it was just the timing of yeah. it. Um, we were maybe a little ahead of. Well, we definitely were a little ahead of the curve from things, but we were really supportive. We played great festivals. We played all of Norman Adams festivals. I played every Bean Blossom festival because Bill Monroe told me that as long as I had a band, I would play Bean Blossom. So, I mean, you can't go wrong with having... Especially you being from Indiana, that's a... Having the father support, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, and we were a traditional bluegrass band. Like, we did, um, you know, we would change the keys to the songs to fit our voices. But we were very particular about making sure that we the music was played, like, authentically to the records if we were doing, you know cover songs traditional songs that have been done so we were i would consider ourselves you know we were a traditional bluegrass band so we we had a we were received very well did did you find that because you were an all-female band especially an all-female traditional band that there may have been more pressure on you um that people were looking for an excuse to say well they're pretty good for a bunch of girls or 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 comments of that nature did you feel that there was more scrutiny on you because you were an all-female band not really i don't know if i was so young that i just didn't realize it all <laughs> you know like yeah. i just wanted to play music and um do a really good show and and we were so well um supported like other bands mm-hmm. were really supportive of us like they thought you know people thought that we were doing a really good job at what we d- were doing yeah. um so i don't think like sometimes there were things that, i mean because you're always going to hear comments but i mean you're g- going to hear comments no matter what you're doing you know yeah. if somebody likes prog- more progressive and you're traditional you know you're going to hear you're just doing the yeah, and that has nothing you're, to do with right. that so, you're wearing a dress or not. So you know. sometimes, you know, there would be the, you would get the, well, y'all are really good for girls. I mean, that was kind of the, sometimes you would hear that line. But other than that. Nothing nothing prevalent or consistent. No, yeah. and, and I don't know if I was just so young and so hungry to play and to book shows and to go everywhere I could go that I just didn't think about it. What are some of your fondest memories of being on the road with Petticoat Junction? Oh gracious! There were so many. We had um, we had so much fun. There was one summer. Um, I th- well, people used to enjoy watching us show up to the festivals, but more so packing to leave because it was kind of like a a clown car. Um, <laughs> we had a minivan and four girls that packed a lot of clothes and a lot of instruments and merch and there was only one way that it would go in and people would literally come and stand by us as we packed because they wouldn't be able to believe that we could get it all in like a human tetris game, and right? <laughs> get our bodies in there to go as well but we were out one time for uh six weeks straight in a minivan wow that's quite the haul and we started in um vancouver no, we started in Toronto at a festival just outside of Toronto, Ontario, and our next show was in Vancouver. Oh, wow. 
and we didn't stop. We traveled hardcore like um, the traditional grass yeah. <laughs> and a bunch of our other friends, um, the Warrior River Boys and uh, the, uh, the bunch that were on the road at that time together. So we traveled from that distance. We never stopped and got a room. We just stopped and uh, went a gas station, ate gas station food, went to the bathroom, got back in the van and went again. And so like 36 hours later, wow, we were in um, Vancouver. And then we went all the way up to a festival in Shetland, British Columbia. The next festival was in Oklahoma. Then we went Oklahoma to Virginia and then Virginia to Mississippi, back to Michigan. Like we just, we went, Zigzagged we everywhere. went, we covered the entire country, I think twice before we were done, but it was awesome. It was so much fun. It was, uh, if, if my daughter Jaylee wanted to do that today, it would give me a heart attack that there were, cause I was like 24 and I was the oldest and uh, Gail Rudisil Johnson was 17, and Gina Britt was the bass player, and she was 18. And we were just gone, no cell phones, no anything. We were just in. Driving I, around the whole continent for. If I thought my daughter was doing that now, I would have a nervous breakdown, but, <laughs> but I wouldn't take it back for anything. It was so much fun. <laughs> Right, fellas, it's time to care about your hair. I was just like you. Doing my hair meant hairsprays and gels that would either leave my hair crunchy or greasy. So what would I do? I'd throw in a ball cap on my way out the door and call it a day rather than fool with my hair. Then I found Samson's Hair Care. Their hair pomade is the best, truly. It has a matte finish so your hair doesn't look wet and oily, and it's made with essential oils and other all-natural ingredients. has an all-day hold as well so you can be confident that your hair will look as good in the evening as it did when you left the house. And it smells great too. Great hair is a staple in bluegrass. Just look at Del McCurry and Larry Sparks. Samson's knows this. That's why they're offering Walls of Time listeners 10% off. Visit samsonshaircare.com and use code BLUEGRASS to save 10% on your order. It's like Samson from the Bible. His hair was legendary and now yours can be too. samsonshaircare.com code BLUEGRASS at checkout to save 10% off the best hair pomade you'll ever buy. That's samsonshaircare.com code bluegrass and now back to walls of time we of course went out to eat to denny's last night after this at this festival wrap and you were talking about a particularly memorable trip to grass valley california yes we were on our way it was our our first time to play grass valley which was so exciting it was in california it was my first time to go to california my first time to you know play the festival out there so we were you know, it was back, there were no GPSs. You know, I would get out the map and measure out the miles and the routes and all of that. And we were in our little minivan on the way. And uh, we were on the highway and we passed the Charlie Sizemore band in their van. We're like, huh, that's Charlie Sizemore. We're like in Montana. And then we passed Raymond Fairchild and the Crow Brothers, same highway. And I'm like, well, there's Raymond. So then we pull off into a, a rest area. And I think we were in 
Montana or Wyoming, whatever the route was, we pulled into the rest area and there was the lost and found and the boys from Indiana with their buses parked cooking to eat so we pulled in of course we were like okay we're having supper because <laughs> you know there's gonna you, be food you knew it was good food if it was lost and found the boys from but I was Indiana, like, what right? are the chances you know there was no discussing the routes the meeting up along the way or whatever and we passed two bands on the road and then meet up with the boys from indiana and the lost and found for dinner in the rest area <laughs> and, and and you knew the only place everybody was headed was grass we, valley we were all <laughs> headed to grass valley <laughs> It was awesome. Do you, that community aspect which amongst the bands, I know that the community was kind of what drew you in at some of your first festivals. Do you feel that there's some of that community aspect that has been lost a little bit in the way that technology has changed the way the businesses work? I do feel like a little bit has changed. Um, I mean, I've, everybody still is is close. Yeah. Um, but it has changed somewhat because everything happens, um, instantaneous now, like whatever we did back in the good old days, um, before, you know, people had cell phones and, you know, you could FaceTime, you could know, you know, know everything. GPS yeah. and everything. Yeah. Everything was um, really exciting. Like everything was kind of a surprise because you didn't know who you were going to see there. You know, you didn't get a text and say, we'll see you there. Yeah. You didn't know who you were going to see till you got there. You didn't know what was going to happen until you got to a festival or an event. Yeah, unless you saw saw the program in BU or something. I mean, right? You knew what yeah. bands were going to be there, but you didn't make you know you didn't make long distance phone calls that weren't necessary back yeah, in the yeah. time. So you didn't call other band. You know, it was everything. There was an element of surprise and excitement and stuff that seemed to be um, a little bit different. Um, at that time, just because, you know, things are just different with technology has its fantastic things, oh, yeah. but there are th elements of it that have, have changed. Um, some of the things that we used to do, um, some of the jams that used to happen, or even, you know, we used to carry softball mitts and bats and stuff and like play ball with the Bass Mountain Boys and different bands paul adkins band and and different people at supper breaks and stuff like that some of those things have changed because of cell phones mm -hmm. and that everything that you do the whole entire world can see yeah. you know yeah. you might not want somebody to see you fall down and trip over home base you know and like yeah. nearly break your neck and <laughs> and you know i don't know it's so that aspect of things I think have has changed a little bit um, the way that people, you know, what some folks do out at the festivals and stuff um, just because the it's just a little different well, situation. And, and, um, other than the fact that other people have cell phones and could film you with them, if, uh, if you've got a cell phone, you've been at a hot festival all day, and the, at least these days... Um, like, okay, I have, to, I have some downtime. I've got the whole world in the palm of my hand and I can just kind of go in that little bubble. Whereas back then it's like, well, you I gotta can, kill time. I can, I can jam, I can talk, I can play salt. You know, there's, you had to do something else. I mean, you're right. not just going to just go 
sit. I mean, you I'm, didn't you, FaceTime your, yeah. you know, your husband or You're wife. Not checking or Facebook or, or watching a ball game. Exactly. Or, you know. So I mean, it's not even so much the privacy issues. It's just that how we um, balance or what we do with free time. You know, play solitaire on your phone. I mean, like yeah. there's so many things that are just different. So. There were a lot of fun things that, that happened then, but there's still a lot of awesome things. Oh, it's totally. just different. It's you know, different. it's just a different type yeah. of thing. But that that social element has definitely kind of, it's just taken on a different form It has a days. different form. Yeah. When you formed Petticoat Junction, did you start doing the booking and all that stuff right off the bat? I did. Um, Which that that's something else, too, that there weren't a lot of female managers booking agents so for you to be booking yourself as was still very very unique especially you know as a as a female and my family my mom and dad didn't um play music they didn't have any kind of history with the music at all um i just went to tons of festivals and stuff and i i knew who um lance leroy was and Lance was my hero. Like, I had never met him until I moved to Nashville. But For people that aren't f- as familiar with the name Lance Leroy as they should be, why don't you give us a little bit of his background? Well, he's just, um, he booked everybody that was in it. He worked in um, management with, with Lester Flatt. Um, he booked... I can't even tell you how many people he, that he Bobby rep- and Sonny. Bob as well. and Sonny, and um, he was very instrumental in booking the Bluegrass Cardinals, mm-hmm. who in my early days, the 70s and the 80s and stuff, was one of the hottest, most influential bands. He worked with Del McCurry. And um, Johnson Mountain Boys. Johnson Mountain yeah. Boys, which were, oh my gracious, I, I could talk about the Johnson Mountain Boys forever. So We're getting into that. You. It's hard for you to pick favorites then. Right. right? <laughs> and so for me, um, you know, growing up in Indiana, the Bluegrass Unlimited was my Bible. Like yeah. that's, I mean, and that goes back to technology again. Like that was the only thing I had to go by. I waited for that to come in the mail. I looked at what festivals that I wanted to go to, looked for the advertising in there. I read the stories and, and it was like, I knew Lance Leroy represented because he always had an ad in Bluegrass yeah. Unlimited, the bands that he worked for. Here's the number to call. So the Lancer agency was, you know, I thought, oh my gracious, Lance Leroy's a got to be the most amazing person and uh he was kind of the first booking agent manager i mean, louise scruggs book flat and scruggs but as far as a let's have a whole roster of artists that i'm going to promote to different festivals he was one of the first he right and so when i put the band together it didn't ever dawn on me like that i would actually get a a booking agent i just figured i had a bluegrass unlimited i had the october issue that <laughs> Or the December issue that had the festival guide in it and stuff. And and I had all the issues that had the flyers in it and stuff. I would just start calling people. So it never crossed my mind to do anything differently. I just started calling people. And I thought, that that shouldn't be a hard thing to do. Um, And the band even had an opportunity. We always played... um, fanfare the bluegrass show and the early bird show in the fall for the opry um birthday celebrations Mm -hmm. 
and hee-haw was interested in us but they wouldn't talk to us because we didn't have a manager but i didn't know what to do to get a manager because they were like i said well you talk to me and they're like no we don't talk to the artists we have we need a manager and i thought well, I don't know how to get a manager. That's me. Yeah. And uh, so we, we didn't end up being on Hee Um But it just never crossed. My, I thought I, it never crossed my mind that I couldn't do it. So I, I booked us everywhere that we ever played and um, never crossed my mind to do otherwise. So it was, and it was great. I loved the relationships that I, um, I made with the, the promoters, um, sometimes I call and they would never book us, but they love to talk to me. <laughs> and, you know, well, I'd hang up and they're like, well, we can't book you, but call me back, you know. And and so, you know, I made great friends with, with promoters. And, I mean, it's just all been a positive. I, I, I can't come up with a, a negative about any of it for these long, many years. <laughs> What were some of the, um, you know, you said, oh, I've got, I've got BU and I got a telephone. I can, I can do this. What, what were some of the biggest lessons you learned as you started trying to book the band? Persistence. Um, I mean, just to tell them why they needed you and what you were going to do that was going to be different and, um, to forge relationships and, um, friendships with the people that you worked with and, um, audience members and um, and not to play for too little money. That was one of the things um, we always made r- really good money. Um, interesting situation that I ended up getting into. Um, my husband Danny Roberts, when we got married, he had his own band, um, uh, New Tradition, the New right? Tradition, yeah. and we made we made a lot more money than they did. Um, so to speak, because I would just, um, I wouldn't play for just nothing. Like, you know, yeah. where there were, if it was a really important festival that I felt like it would be a career building situation for the band to be there and to get in front of somebody or whatever. But, um, we made pretty doggone good money for the time that it was and, and what we were doing. Um, it was persistence and just kind of standing your ground firmly but nicely standing your ground with things and you know it would work for females or males yeah well and that's such great advice because um i feel like some bands you know i'm not a booking agent i'm not a festival promoter but i feel like some bands get stuck in a trap where once people expect to be able to pay you minimum wage per se right it makes it harder to get away from that um and you can really quickly fall into a trap where if if you compromise on a couple of dates and then you start compromising on more and more and more and more then you you can you can quickly build a hole you can't build dig yourself out of financially or or to make it make much more business sense to keep going that route. You're exactly right. And it's not an easy thing to do. Um, I find that now with new artists that I work with um, and people that are trying to build that have maybe done their own booking Mm -hmm. and um, promoters want to continue going directly to the artist because they feel like they can get the artist to play for less money. 
Um, so it's it can be a little bit of a tricky situation, but you're exactly right about that. Because um, once you kind of commit to a a certain sure. level, yeah. you kind of get stuck there. Um, but and you have to kind of be willing to maybe lose a few dates um, to be able to stick with that and you know kind of build up into the next level so you kind of have to make a commitment knowing that um you might lose a few you might make a a friend you know ruffle their feathers a little bit um because you tell them that you have to have more money or that they have to talk to your agent instead of you but but it helps um you have to be at a certain level really for having an agent to help you but it takes um a lot of weight off of the artist so that they don't get put in those positions. Um, You know, when you're able to just say, I don't handle any of the bookings, you have to talk to them. It takes a lot of pressure off the artist. Yeah. You have someone else going to bat for you. So it's not up to you to play hardball um, to get what you know that you're worth. If you have someone else be like, hey, this band is worth that much, it also means a lot too versus saying I'm worth that much. Because that's hard to do. That's hard. It's it's hard to brag about yourself. It is. And that's great lessons. What are are some other lessons you've learned about, uh, about booking from both booking... Uh, your own band back in the day and then being a, a booking agent for the past several decades now to expect anything really <laughs> yeah you just you just never know what's going to happen um i did all of my own booking um for petticoat junction and then i went and played with acts for a, a good while and you play with special consensus i did yeah. I, i've played with so many people i kind of forget <laughs> um had a great time playing with uh the Fox family, Kim Fox and her family. I I played with them for a while. I played with Valerie Smith and Liberty Pike. Um, I played a lot of shows with Mac Wiseman. Um, I played. That had to be a treat. That was awesome. Um, I was a Sunny Mountain boy. I played some shows with Jimmy Martin, um, played with Larry Sparks and in different ones. And, uh, but during all of that time, I was strictly in, perform a sideman role um and then how i came to start having an actual booking agency was the grascals formed in 2004 and um, they had a rounder records deal and um they were in the studio and they were going out to work with dolly pardon but the big booking agencies had passed on them for whatever reason. Do you think just because they were just new? I think because they were new, didn't know it maybe since they were going out with Dolly, if they would actually end up sticking with it as a band or what would happen. Yeah. Um, and they were like, well, we want to book, you know, we need to book shows. We're the Graskles. And I said, well, I guess I can do it. I booked my own band. I know who to call, you know. Yeah, you know Y'all everybody, are, you, yeah. You, you're all, you know, you going to have a record coming out on on rounder and and you're working with dolly pardon i don't know why i wouldn't be able to call bluegrass festivals and and get shows so um it was coming up time for like that same week coming up time to get ready for fanfare and they're like well if you're going to do it what are you going to call it and i'm like 
well, I don't know. I hadn't thought that far. And they're like, well, we need to make business cards and get stuff ready tomorrow because fanfare is coming up and we're going to have a booth. We can't just say, like, call Danny's wife. Right? And I was <laughs> like, um, okay, I guess we'll be really fancy here and we'll just call off the Andrea Roberts agency. So You didn't have to put on a bunch of Flat and Scruggs records to come up with that no, name, did so you? So I was like, I don't know what else to call it. So that's that's how that came about. And then after I started, you know, I was booking the grass goals, other people started approaching me about booking them as well. And so that was, that was 2004 and here we are in 2020. When you first started booking for the grass goals, were you still playing with other bands too? Or had you kind of retired from that side? I had just made the decision, um, Jaylee was born, uh, my daughter Jaylee in 2001 and I had gone back out on the road um, playing with Tim Graves and Cherokee, playing bass and singing with them. But we didn't have family in Tennessee. So it was really hard. Like I was driving to Indiana to take her to my sister-in-law, to drive back to Tennessee, to get on the bus, to go to Florida, to come back and then go back. You know, it was it was really – and Danny was playing with Ronnie Reno when the Grascals came about. And uh, when that happened, it was like, he's going to be gone. I mean, because Dolly came about, you know, just yeah. about that exact same time. Not long after the band And formed, they yeah. were going to have this huge tour and stuff. And it was like, I can't play. I'm not going to be. I was actually, at that time, playing with the Leash Nugent band. Oh, really? Um, and I was like, I just can't manage being on the road with her at this age and him just going to be gone all the time Mm -hmm. so it was just a perfect it was just like god opened up a door to allow me to continue working in the business and not you know giving it up completely and it worked great because it allowed me to be with her um while he traveled because he was basically gone we didn't see a lot of him until um I don't know, she was maybe sixth or seventh grade, like honestly, through her, all of her elementary age, um, they were Tours with Dolly and Hank Jr. and Dirks and And, just go on and on Yeah, they were really, really just gone. And he also worked a full-time job at Gibson as well. So if he was home, he uh, was working. Um, So... It was just, it was the just the perfect thing. It allowed me to spend all of my time with her, and still be involved in the business, and and I just love it. It's like I love um, working with artists and 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 helping them, you know, achieve things. And and I take it, I, I kind of maybe look at it a little differently, even than some of the other. Um, agents do and that's not a a put down in any way it's just it's it's really kind of a personal thing for me because not only am I on that side of it but I also have been an artist and um, I'm married to an artist so you know what the I, I want what's best for the bands even if that means you know I realize maybe I'm not the one that's doing the best job for them um I'm for me this the whole thing is friendship and relationships first. So I'll be the first one to say, you know, if, if things aren't going, you know, you got a house payment to pay, 
you know, if we need to switch things up or maybe there's somebody else that might be able to do a little better job for you right now or whatever, go try it. And if that doesn't work out, come back, you know, because yeah. it's, it's just all, it's business to me, but the personal relationships, um, everybody, these people are my friends. I know yeah. their families and stuff. So it's, it's. A lot deeper even than just, you know, the, what I, you know, the, my business, my business hat that I wear when I'm working with them, you know, I also, yeah. you know, I'm worried about other aspects of what they're doing and stuff and the friendships are really important. You talked about when you were with Petticoat Junction and they asked, we need to talk to a manager and oh. you're like, we, well, I don't know how to get a manager. So then when you formed the Andrea Roberts agency, you did booking but you also did management as well a lot of bands out there don't have a strictly manager. they may have a booking agent but there's a what's the difference between a booking agent and a manager and what what roles does a manager do that a booking agent doesn't the manager worries about every single aspect of what's going on i mean every single thing um you know a booking agent's job is pretty cut and dry you call you try to get jobs and try to get the most money that you can for it. And, you know, it's kind of a cut and dry situation with management or for me, you know, you're, you're kind of, you oversee everything that's going on. You know, you want to make sure that there's publicity and that everybody's hearing about, you know, what's going on. If the band can't afford it. I usually wear a lot of hats. I'll do a lot of social media, even though I am not a social media person. I'll get on and make posts and, you know, I'll do things just because I feel like we, you know. It needs done. It Somebody's has to be done. Do Somebody's yeah. got to do it. Um, and it's just basically overseeing everything. It's listening to um, how sets are going down on stage and making recommendations of changing song lineups that might go together better um talking about how you talk to the ba the audience and relating better to the audience it's talking about dress it's talking about how you act when you're at the festivals and i mean every single you know for me it's helping to pick out songs for um recordings um it's negotiating re recording deals getting yeah. you know the the bands their deals to make records um like every single aspect of the band's business that's it that sounds a lot a lot different than just picking up a bu and a telephone like you thought that yes <laughs> you thought that it was going to be when you were in the late 80s so. well and i had never um I had wa I've watched, you know, taken in a lot over my years, you know, and I've, I had seen, um, hadn't been around a lot of bands that had had management per se till the Grascals came along and they had, you know, when they hit, they, it was the full big yeah. thing. They had, you know, publicity and, and management and, um, their first manager, Karen Bird, was she was amazing. That woman was unbelievable. She worked, I think, probably thirty hours a day with them. Um, 
And she was just outstanding. So she was um, a big influence on me because I worked closely with her with the booking and and other decisions that were made, even to do some co-booking for um, country acts, uh, country shows. So I did co-booking with uh, an agency for them, you know. She and she oversaw yeah. every aspect of everything. So when Flat Lonesome came along, that was my first, ex, you know, experience with booking because they started from scratch. You mean with management? With management, yeah. I had never managed anyone yeah. before, um, and so that was the first time that I had done that. But the band started literally, you know, kind of in our living room prepping songs to go enter the Spigma competition, which was the first time they had ever walked out on stage together. And so I worked with them on every aspect of everything from the beginning of the band. So that Literally was my, from, from the first note they played to the last note they played, to the, you exactly. know, to the Opry and beyond to the so. Opry and, and, and all of it. Yeah. And, um, and I love management. Like that's, that's my favorite thing. Like I love to, um, try to help people grow. Like that's that I love it so much to just, you know, see the changes maybe in somebody's stage show going from, you know, having a good show to a better show and, um, you know, affecting the audience with, with, what they're doing, you know, seeing potential in people and and, and seeing what happens from that um, and just overseeing the entire process of what's going on. I just love it. That's- well, and that's something I've noticed, too, from the way that you just watch bands that you don't work with. You are very intuitive on saying, oh this is a lot better or a lot different than the last time I saw them. Right. You know, that's something that you, so to get to be a part of that process of taking of a band going from point A to point B has got to be very rewarding. Oh, it is. I love it so much. That's it. It's so exciting to me. And I'm working with a, a young artist now, a a really great band, the Caleb Darty band and, um, and managing, uh, do management work with him and it's just really fun to see you know be at kind of the beginning with him and um, imagining where it's going to go because they're uh he, he's just a great singer and the whole band is just open open and wanting to just get better and and um and i love i love that aspect of it there's a not just in bluegrass but there's there's stigmas out there about women who are also shrewd business people, you know, women in business. What are some experiences you've faced because you're doing all this business work as a woman? I haven't had um, too many negative things. I think for me, um, sometimes I don't stand quite firm enough with people on some things like I'm kind of everybody's little buddy and it's kind of easy to maybe um, not take me and not because I'm a woman, but just because I'm, I'm kind of a people person. I'm kind of a people person, a little easier going um, with things. And I, you know, to think I'd have to get ugly over something kind of makes me feel bad, but 
I'm finding as I'm getting a little older and some things I'm, ha- you know, having to maybe stay in my ground a little bit more yeah. on things. And I think, um, you know, that's just part of it. It's a, it continues to be a learning experience. If you kind of, I, I feel like if you think you've got the whole process figured out and you know it all, you may as well quit because there ain't no knowing it all yeah. as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Do you ever feel like the hustle and bustle of life keeps you from accomplishing your goals and staying on track? Have you ever felt exhausted at the end of the day, but yet feel like you've accomplished nothing? Help focus on your goals and stay on track with a self-journal from Best Self Co. Whether you're starting your own business, a college student, or you're just feeling overwhelmed with day-to-day life, the self-journal is packed with tools to help you get more done. With features including daily planning, a 13-week roadmap for your goals, inspirational quotes, daily and weekly habit tracking, and a place to record morning and evening gratitude. Best Self Co. offers a line of productivity tools to help you accomplish more. Check out all of their products at bestself.co. Use code BLUEGRASS to save 15% off of your first purchase. That's bestself.co, code BLUEGRASS to save 15% off your first purchase. What year was the car accident that you were a part of? It was... Hmm. 2008, November of 2008. So you'd been booking for the grass goals for four years? Mm-hmm. And you were hit by a drunk driver, correct? Yes. Um, how did that affect you uh, personally and professionally? Well, it was, um, I, had to, I ended up having to take a little hiatus from the agency at the time. Um, the Graskels had gone through a management change, and the management no longer wanted me to be the booking agent. So I was not booking the band right at that time, but I was working with some really great artists. Um, Newfound Road was one, I'm a huge Tim Shelton fan, um, and several other, uh, actually Balsam Range. I was their first um, booking agent, and... Um, but I didn't have any broken bones or anything. It's, it's amazing. Really, it's, it's truly amazing um, how I came through the accident. Because um, I've seen pictures of the car. Yes. And it was a uh, – where, where did you get hit? I was – my brother was in the hospital in Indiana. So I had gone to Indiana to visit him um, for his surgery and um, – he wasn't doing quite as well as we had hoped. I had my car packed to leave to go back to Tennessee that night after visiting him. But I decided I wanted to stay one more day and go back and visit him. So I was heading back north um, to my to their home to spend the night. And just out of nowhere, like there were no other cars on the highway. There were no... Was it I saw night? No, it or? was at night. And there were no lights. Um I had just gone through Taco Bell and um, I had my cruise control set and was just going up the highway. And the next thing I know, I didn't know what was happening to me. Like I was just flipping. I didn't even, I didn't even know what was happening. I just knew something was hurting. Um, And then it all stopped. And then I realized 
obviously I had been in a car accident. You could smell the gas and the all the stuff, and I was upside down. I didn't know where, you know, anything of it, and uh, I was hit by a drunk driver. They determined that he was probably running about 130 miles an hour, and he had no lights on or anything. He was in a Porsche, and I was driving a Durango, and so thankfully um, he ran under my bumper. Had it had been, if, if I had been in a car, it would have been a horrible, um, fiery crash. But he ran underneath my bumper. So he hit so you from behind. It, it hit me dead from behind and flipped me. So I flipped four times end over end in the, and then three times barrel rolled into a ditch and landed on my top. Um, but I crawled out and, uh, so it was, a, it was, it was a God thing. Like there was no doubt in my mind, but for some months after that, I just, I was, had a lot of pain. Um, you said you didn't have any broken, no broken, broken bones, bones, but, but I'm a sure lot there some of other things. there were a lot of, I had a concussion and, um, just a lot of soft tissue injuries and it just kind of had to have a, a couple surgeries and stuff like that. And, just kind of threw me for a loop so it just kind of took me out of I felt like it I wasn't doing my best work for people at that time so I just kind of shut it down for a little while um and was like yeah maybe you know I can't do what I need to be doing for everybody and you know it was a really key time for balsam range and um it just, you know, I couldn't do the best job that I needed to be doing. So I had shut it down and reopened the agency for Flat Lonesome. So that was kind of how things started Came back, back was with them. What were some lessons that uh, you learned ab- about life and about yourself during that whole experience? Well, it was just, um, number one, that... I mean, if I if I never doubted that God hears and answers prayer, but in that moment, like I before I did anything, like I I didn't even know I was upside down, like I didn't know how I could get out of the car or whatever. But I specifically prayed to God. You know, I wiggled my fingers; they wiggled. I wiggled my toes; they wiggled, and I just said, "Ask God," like I. To give me clarity. The very first thing I asked for was for him to give me clarity of mind. To be able to get out of the vehicle. And to keep me calm. And stuff. And I just, I prayed right there. I crawled out. I was able to get out. And I mean, I was calm enough that a a passerby, um, I took their cell phone and called my sister-in-law. And told her that I had been in an accident. Now, they had thought whoever was in it was going to be dead they sent out like the um the response unit for a person like a casualty right like they it was a four-lane highway and they'd shut down all four lanes of the highway and uh i was able to witness to the drunk driver i said you know i was late and your blood's running down my face and stuff and i was like i could smell the alcohol in his breath and i said you know you've almost killed the mama of a six-year-old little girl. What if you would have died? Would you have gone to heaven or would you have gone to hell? If right this very moment, 
you know, do you need to think about that? And I witnessed to the, to the driver and then the ambulance came and they, you know, but I was clear. I, I sang to them. I'm sure they must've thought I was some kind of crazy. I sang the whole time I was in the ambulance. What'd you sing? I was singing Redback Hymnal songs, (laughs) but they were cutting my clothes. Like literally they, I was so swollen and stuff. They had to cut all of my clothes off and I had IVs in both arms and, you know, this whole thing. And I was by myself because um, Danny was home with Jaylee because it was during the week. But, you know, just that God hears and answers prayer and that great friends are worth more than any money in the world, you know, because in, in church friends and, and music friends and you know, because everybody called to check and, you know, people came and helped and brought food and stuff because Jaylee was little and Danny was gone and just, you know, it kind of makes you reevaluate what the really important things are in life and to not take those for granted. Yeah. How did how did that experience impact the way that uh, you conducted business when you did restart the agency? Just to, uh, I was very thankful for the opportunity uh, to be able to do it. And just that, you know, to keep priorities straight, that the people that you work with, um, you know, to just always be thankful. I mean, it is a business, but I mean, and I don't take the business part lightly in any way, but that the things that are, you know, that can all go away, you know, at any any point, and to keep the important things, the important things, which are the friends that you make and the people that you work with and those relationships and your family, and um, just to not take anything for granted and to know how blessed you are. Yeah, and uh, you uh, you've been blessed with a lot of great opportunities, both as a business person and as a musician. What are some of the uh, as you look back, what are some of the cool experiences or some of the, the highlights of a very varied career that you've had? Oh, gracious. There's so many of them. Um, with the business aspect of it, um, the two IBMA Entertainer of the Year Awards for um, the Grass Goals were so exciting. And um, the um, awards for flat lonesome when they won their emerging artist award like that was i i about lost my mind actually it was i did and it was so exciting and then um their debut performance of you're the one at the ibma award show will forevermore stand out in my mind um and all of the great bands that i mean i've had the opportunity to work with bobby osborne and jesse mcreynolds i mean those are my they're legends and heroes and to be able to do to work with those people that influenced me at the very beginning of my time is just unbelievable um and then as a musician because a lot of people don't even know that I played music like I haven't played for 15 years so the young folks or people that are just coming into the music you know wouldn't really even know that I, I did have yeah. a music career, but, um, I played bass with Bill Monroe. He invited me. I was just standing in the wings at the Opry. He decided he wanted to have twin fiddles. So he said, uh, you've got to go get that bass. And I said, 
And I said, well, I don't have a bass here. I'm not playing the Opry. And it was Saturday night. And he's like, uh, well, just play Taters then. And <laughs> I went out and played um, on the Saturday night Opry with Bill Monroe. And he gave me this big introduction and all this stuff. And it was just, that was amazing. Um, I played guitar and um, did a trio thing with Mac Wiseman and Jesse McReynolds on the Opry and sang with them. Um, play, I did a, I played bass at Myrtle Beach, South Carolina on uh, Traveling Down This Lonesome Road with Bill Monroe, Chubby Wise, and Mac Wiseman together, um, playing with Larry Sparks, playing with, um, I, I went up and played, Charlie Waller gave me his guitar and I played he sat down and I played his guitar and sang with them. Like I've had so many experiences, you know, played with saying, I used to sing a lot with Jim and Jesse. The only person I never, the only band I never got to sing with was the Osborne brothers, but they didn't need me that Bobby. <laughs> yeah, They already had a guy that could sing like a girl, right? But it was so much fun singing that high harmony part with Jim and Jesse. And I got to do that a lot of times. Um, I loved Don Reno. Um, when I was a kid, I never played on stage with them, but you know, as a kid, I, I was setting out with my banjo and, he walks up and he was like, oh, you're doing really good. He's like, would you mind if I sat down and played with you? And I'm like, are you kidding me? And he, you know, played banjo with me um, and always asked me, was I practicing? How was, I mean, never forgot um, Doyle Lawson. Like, I can't even put in words, you know, just him musically and as a a mentor and and a little advice thing like things that he said to me that's made a difference in my life that he didn't even realize but you know things that he said I mean I feel like I was so blessed with the time at the age that I am that other than Lester Flat I got to see all of the creators yeah. of the music. You know, I've had opportunities. I had opportunities to jam with Earl Scruggs. Um, hearing the traditional grass and the influence that they had on me and the boys from Indiana and their, the way the entertainers that they were and, and being in, you know, seeing the Tony Rice unit and new grass revival and like just all of these things just, that happened during my, that I got to see the, the first generation and be friends with them and play music with them and then see the changes that have come. You really came of age during a real transitional period yes. for our music. So you got to see kind of it all unfold. I, yeah. All of it, you yeah. know, so it, it's, it's really just been magical. Like it really has, um, to, to think of, of what, you know, that I've had the opportunity really to see all of it. And um, and then to have actually gotten to play with all of those people, you know, and not just jams, like actually be on stage. One of the coolest thing ever, there was a, used to be a music event in Nashville um, called Summer Light, Summer Night, oh, goodness, it was a huge, a huge thing, but I played that with um, Mac Wiseman. And there were like, 
20,000, 25,000 people at the show, like in downtown Nashville. And I played bass with Mac for that. And, um, you know, that was, I was like, wow, I never dreamed I would be playing for this many people. And I got to play with Mac Wiseman. And uh, it was just, you know, I don't know how, like, I could probably write a book if I really started thinking about, you know, that I played bass with Larry Sparks on a face in the crowd. You yeah. know, I mean, I got to play bass with Larry Sparks. I mean, oh my gracious. You got to and r- ride the bus as a Sunny Mountain girl. I did. Yeah. And um, just, just blessed. I mean, it's just been, I wouldn't take anything for it in this whole world. And, um, you know, to be able to share that also with my husband. Um, you know, we've never played music together, but... Um, that was always our joke about if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Yeah. You, <laughs> you play, you know, we won't mix that part yeah. up. We might cross the line there. But, and then to, you know, to raise our daughter in the music and she's made all of these amazing friends and, you know, is getting to enjoy all the same things and wants to pursue music, um, you know, and, and be involved in it. She's, uh, studying commercial songwriting and music business and, um, and, you know, just to think that maybe you had a little part in um, helping somebody along the way is just amazing. You're known as such as an encourager, not just to, to young bands that you work with or manage, but also among your peers as well. Do you think that some of that comes to the way that you were encouraged and motivated by those that you looked up to when you first started showing up around bluegrass festivals? <laughs> I would say so because, I mean, I never felt defeated about what I was trying to do. I was encouraged. Like, I never felt like um, this was, no matter what the aspect of it that I was doing, that there was any reason to believe that I couldn't do it. Mm -hmm. So to be able to tell somebody else, there's no reason why you can't do this. Do it. There's room for everybody. There's room for every style of music. There's room for other booking agents, you know, we're, we're all in this together. I mean, it's a business and everybody's got to be, you know, wants to be successful and help everybody that they're, um, working with be the best, but we're still all in it together. And, um, you know, it's just, I feel like if I can, you know, Say something to somebody that makes, if they're feeling discouraged, maybe makes them want to, you know, feel like, hey, what I'm doing is worthwhile, you know, then that's more important to me than anything. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us. That was really fun. Oh, and I, I had another memory. I was just thinking I, I'd failed to mention how much I love Del McCurry. <laughs> and, and I'd had this really amazing thing happen. Um. Gibson was, uh, back in the early night, late eighties, early nineties, they were, uh, given quite a few instruments away, but I got an, they gave me an advanced jumbo guitar to play, but it was so cool because they gave it to Del McCurry and he played it on stage. And then after the show, he gave it to me and Man. um because it was my guitar and yeah. so that was really cool i was because I, I i failed to mention how much I, I didn't say i just didn't say del mccurry near enough because as a guitar player um <laughs> i loved the, um i wasn't a, a soloist mm-hmm. um but 
the rhythm guitar playing of uh, Jimmy Martin and Del McCurry and Mark Rader were those were my three biggest um, and a, a man named Kenny DeMarcus who was a local where I grew up but but Del and Jimmy and Mark Rader were my three biggest rhythm guitar heroes. So I was like, if I could play like them, I didn't need to play lead. I just wanted to be a rhythm hoss. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. And uh, this goes back again to it's hard for you to pick favorites. It right? is. It is. I, really, I was like, oh, I'm leaving names out. I, it's going to stress me out. <laughs> I couldn't say goodbye. I see you tried to say goodbye. It's like leaving church. Yeah. You, you, there's something else to say to somebody. You can't just say so long and walk out the door. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much. I appreciate thank it. Thank you, Daniel. It was awesome. <laughs> I appreciate it. I hope you all enjoy it. Hi, guys. Adam from Samson's Hair Care here. I wanted to let you know about a new product we've released called Texture Powder. You just sprinkle it in, work it into your roots, and it provides you with volume and hold and texture while leaving your hair looking natural. Give it a shot. Use the code BLUEGRASS on our website to save 10% off your total. Andrea Roberts, our special guest on the Walls of Time Bluegrass podcast today, a gal that loves bluegrass so much she even named her daughter after J.D. Crow. That's right. Her daughter Jaylee's initials are J.D. after one of our favorite banjo players. Uh, Andrea is one of our favorite uh, ladies in bluegrass music. She's been a mentor to me, and what a bluegrass legacy she's left behind but is still building on. Yeah, I don't think we should tell Jaylee about that. Let's keep that secret between just us and our listeners so she doesn't find <laughs> out about that but uh yeah it's great to have uh andrea uh on this uh sort of mid-season episode uh she's a friend of mine she's a friend of just about everybody in our bluegrass family because she's done so much um uh, truly a renaissance uh lady uh for the modern times been there done that uh had some great successes too she talked a little bit about um her achievements with uh, the fantastic uh, family group flat lonesome and uh I can say that she uh, and and act, actually Flat Lonesome. I think whenever you would ask them, they would uh, give credit to her for a lot of their success. And I think uh, that's where the credits do. She did a great job with them and uh, does a great job with all the folks she works with. Even uh, uh, works with us over here at the Mountain Home Label and has done a great job uh, being a uh, liaison with artists like the Grasskills and, and Flat Lonesome when they were still active. And uh, yeah, so so glad to hear more about Andrea's background and story on the episode today. She won Mentor of the Year in the World of Bluegrass a few years ago because she's so encouraging, not just uh, for bands or artists that she works with, but to everyone in the industry. Everyone, You always feel better after hanging out with Andrea. She's great to uh, lend advice and uh, encourage you and build you up, and that, that's part of what makes the Bluegrass as a community and a family so unique because there's so many people like Andrea that are always there uh, encouraging young talent, whether performing or like myself, that 
uh, I, I don't perform, I don't sing and pick, but Andrea is still very good at encouraging me in, uh, in different parts of the industry. And me and Flat Lonesome are just a small handful of the number of people that Andrea has touched in this business. Of course, she was a member of the very important band Petticoat Junction back in the 80s and 90s, one of the first all-female groups in the world of bluegrass. That's right. So, uh, you know, a trailblazer in that way uh, as well, uh, not just in uh, the business side of it, but also as a musician. I think a lot of folks are kind of got used to her being on the other side of things, but a fantastic player. You know, she uh, grew up playing the music, grew up playing banjo and talks about her influences and all the fantastic legends she's played with over the years. Uh, of course, uh, she mentions the Osborne brothers as being one of her big influences. I think as has just about everybody we've interviewed in the last, you know, season and most of this season, Osborne brothers at the top of the list of one of the big, uh, influences and all these folks and you know andrea's is sweet she's a uh, uh, humble but she's really sharp and intelligent lady very kind and uh, yeah just uh it you know those of us who have been fortunate enough to uh, partner with her and work with her um we've really uh, learned so much about the business and how to treat people so we thank you andrea for all you've done for uh so far and continue to do uh in the bluegrass industry She's a truly a, a leader and an influencer in the world of bluegrass, and we're so glad to have her on the podcast this week. Be sure to go to Walls of Time Bluegrass Podcast to learn more about what we do here and, and sharing the stories of some of the leaders and legends in bluegrass. You can get your official Walls of Time Bluegrass Podcast t-shirts that help uh, keep this podcast going. Be sure to listen and subscribe on whatever platform you enjoy. Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, and more. And where can folks find us on social media, Ty? We're on Facebook and Instagram at Walls of Time Podcast and Walls of Time Pod on Twitter. And I'm putting together a playlist that will feature Andrea and also some of the groups that uh, she has been involved with and supported up on Spotify. And you can listen to our Walls of Time Spotify playlist as well. Next time on Walls of Time, uh, we feature a tall drink of water from Texas who happens to be the most awarded male vocalist of all time in the world of bluegrass. Yeah, you guessed it. Russell Moore is going to be stopping by for a two-part episode. Next week, we will learn about uh, his uh, his start in the bluegrass music world, working uh, with Doyle Lawson and Quicksilver at a young age, and a whole lot more as Russell Moore joins the Walls of Time Bluegrass Podcast next week. Thanks for listening. Walls of Time Bluegrass Podcast is produced by Ty Gilpin and Daniel Mullins, edited by Daniel Mullins, and is a production of Blue Poncho Media. Visit wallsoftimepodcast.com for more information.